Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Coming off a long hiatus, it feels so good to be back with you again. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Ann Johnson about her late short story collection, Light Skin Gone to Waste, which comes out today. It won the 2021 Flannery O'Connor Short Fiction Prize and was selected for that honor by Roxane Gay, who also edited the book. Tony Ann, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And it's so good to see you again. That's right. Because I'm now with colleagues from school. Yes. (laughs) It has been years, but Tony Ann and I went to Antioch University, Los Angeles. That's where we got our MFAs. And it's just a pleasure to see you again. I remember you were such a force then, and I'm so happy for you now. Thank you so much. Previously, Tony Ann has published an award-winning novella, Homegoing, and a novel, Remedy for a Broken Angel. She's also written award-winning screenplays for the Disney movie Ruby Bridges and for the film Crown Heights, which was produced by Showtime. As I mentioned, Light Skin Gone to Waste is a linked short story collection based on your family's life living in Monroe, New York, a small, nearly all-white community about an hour north of the city during the 60s and 70s. Through these stories, we're introduced to the Arringtons, a cosmopolitan, upwardly mobile Black family that travels to West Africa, Europe, and Asia. Dr. Philip Arrington is a psychologist. He grew up poor but worked hard to reach the top of his profession. He also quite brazenly has multiple affairs with white women. His wife, Velma, is very smart, very savvy, and beautiful. She becomes the owner of an antique shop, but she is also incredibly volatile and abusive to their daughter, Madeline, or Maddie. Phil's daughter from his first marriage, Livia, also occasionally stays with the family. When the collection opens, Maddie hasn't been born yet. Her parents, Phil and Velma, are renting a house in Monroe, and the man renting to them had no idea they were Black. The collection explores the racism the family experiences, how those experiences are shaped by colorism, as well as the role of class. Through Maddie's experiences as the only Black girl at her school and the way Phil treats Velma, we also see how gender shades these dynamics. Tony Ann, I absolutely loved this collection. I just fell in love with the characters and the rich world that you created. It reminded me of some of my favorite short story collections, such as ZZ Packer's Drinking Coffee Elsewhere, and Disha Filios' The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Thank you. I love both of those collections. Yes, the way you, you painted such vivid pictures and the characters felt so alive on the page. And I know you have that experience with screenwriting. And I was seeing this as I was reading. I was seeing it like a play or like a movie. I mean, I could see that happening maybe for you down the line because the stories are just so well drawn and Uh, just again, an amazing job, Tony Ann. I love this collection. Uh, Let's back up a little bit to what your reaction was like when you heard that you had won the Flannery O'Connor Prize. What did you actually get a call from Roxanne? What happened? It's a whole story. So Marva, this, this, I was developing this with, um, with an agent for years and she had wanted to sell it as a novel. And so from from 2016 to 2021, we were back and forth. Like I I submitted the first story story in 2016 and she didn't take me on as a client immediately, but then eventually she did. And I 
finished the first draft in 2017. But after that draft, she said, you know what, I think that this is really a novel and I want you to do a revision with that in mind. So the stories aren't stories, they're chapters and I want you to do more to like, so I did all this work, it took years, it wasn't ready until January of 2021 and it went out as a novel to 26 editors and every one passed. And after all that work, I was so devastated. I can't, I don't think I can even adequately describe how devastated I was. I was in a dark, dark place. Um, you know, I'm not young. I've been doing this a long time. And it just felt like the most enormous failure. And I was so disappointed. So I was in that dark place. And then I just happened to look because uh, my friend Cynthia Bond recommended look through the poets and writers um, submissions listings. And I saw the call for the Flannery O'Connor Award. And I knew somebody who had won it a few years prior, um, Colette Sartor, and I loved her collection. And, I was like, and then I saw Roxanne Gay's name. And I, so my thought was, well, I don't think there's any way I can win this, but maybe Roxanne Gay would like my writing enough to be open to receiving my book as a submission for her other imprint. So then I realized, oh, the word count limit is 75,000 words. My novel was huge. It was 500 pages. It was almost 150,000 words. So I had to strip out half of the existing book and turn it back into just a, a tighter story collection. And I did that really quickly, like in a day. <laughs> I was oh, just wow. like, cut, okay. cut, cut, cut. And then I just put it back together and submitted it because the deadline was coming up. This was in May. And then I found out that I won in September and I just felt so elated and um, I felt proud that I knew what I was doing. So I didn't, I didn't actually agree with the decision to turn it into a novel, but because I really wanted to sell a book, I went along with that and I didn't really understand. It, it, it didn't feel like a novel to me. Um, it felt like a story collection. And going back to that, it, it was just gratifying to know, okay, just because I'm not, you know, the gatekeeper or the person in charge doesn't mean I don't know what to do with my own work. And so I, you know, I just felt good. <laughs> I was like, cool. Like somebody saw what I saw, thank God. And I can stop having to advocate for myself and my opinions um, and, and just move forward now. Um, so that was great. I was really, really pleased and excited. Um, and I was even more over the moon that it was because that it was Roxanne Gay in, involved in it because I'm such a fangirl. I had met her years earlier and I begged her to take a picture with me and she didn't really want to, I don't think. And it was this awkward picture. I never posted it, but I just admired her so much and I've read so much of her work. Um, so that was amazing to me. I was extremely excited. <laughs> Well, I am so glad that you saw that and submitted this because it is, again, it's wonderful. I really enjoyed it so much. Through these stories, a lot of them, you tell them through Maddie's point of view. Mm -hmm. you know, early on, due to her age and maybe even her light skin, she doesn't realize that she's different from the kids that she's playing with. And her parents are able to shield her from a lot of things as well. Why did you want to tell so many things from her point of view at the time? So this is not like, you know, Maddie's an older woman now. She's looking back. We're seeing Maddie at eight, Maddie at 12. Right. right. 
That's a good question. I guess because those were my vivid memories. So each story, while this is fiction, each story is based on an event from my past that I remembered and was affected by and um, kept pondering over the years. So the first Maddie story, Claiming Tobias, um, starts when she's you know really a little girl and then the bulk of it is when the summer she turns six. Um, and I just remember those details so vividly. And I, I, I think I was sort of um, enamored with the nostalgia of all the, the tactile details of like the, the, you know, the things they played with and touched and tasted and smelled, you know, um, eating the hostess cupcakes or Twinkies or whatever they were eating and the, her easy bake oven and her Barbies and his GI Joe and the kiddie pool and badminton. I, I was just, I remembered all these things and, and our, uh, our childhood together. This, um, and I'm speaking of the character Tobias, who was Maddie's best friend until that summer. <laughs> um, so that was a vivid memory. And then I guess it might be that because I started with that story and, I, and we were with Maddie at that age, I think that just carried through to the next memory and the next memory. And there's sort of a, there's a, a little bit of a, of a distance. For example, like in the next story, Lucky, we're with Maddie at eight, but the vocabulary that is used um, to talk about Maddie's thoughts is more sophisticated than would be believable for an eight-year-old. So, so it's kind of a combination. We're with her, but it's almost like the, the author is with the character guiding the reader through the story from the author's point of view, but trying to ground it in the in Maddie's present, but you know, using using words and, and a perspective that might be a little bit more sophisticated than an eight-year-old, you know, would conceivably uh, be able to access. You mentioned that a friend is the one who talked to you about, you know, you should write these stories about uh -huh. growing up. Uh, did you have any? apprehension about talking about people because there is a real Tobias out there you know your yeah. mother is still with us did that yeah. give you pause I did um my father is deceased he passed away in 2014 um I did have some apprehensions about it and I proceeded anyway whether that was naive or ballsy or whatever um my truth is my truth um my mother knows how I feel about my childhood and my relationship with her it's not going to be a surprise to her she may not like it um but it was what it was <laughs> um and my mother you know I waited a long time for this to come out. My mother's friends are mostly no longer with us. My mother's quite you know, up in age. I don't think that this collection would cause her the kind of embarrassment that it might have had it come out in the 90s um, or earlier, you know? So I've, it's not the first time I've been asked that question, um, but I think that, you know, this isn't memoir, so it is published as fiction. So it's very easy to say, well, this is inspired by these events. Um, perhaps the author took some leeway in terms of um, the 
excessiveness of the the abuse. Um, I don't see it that way, but if my mother wants to say that, um, she can, um, and be well within her right to, to say that. It's not a memoir. I'm not using her name. Um, it's inspired by things that happened and, you know, those are my memories and my experiences. And as a writer, as an artist, I, I think that's what we do. And yes, you, you do have to be con concerned about how it's gonna affect other people, but you also have to be authentic and, and speak your own truth and express, um, express things as, as truthfully as, you, as you're able to, I think. I mean, that's what I try to do. Um, Has she read the manuscript yet? I, I haven't talked to my mother in almost a year. Um, no, I don't think so, because I don't think she would have had access to it. She, um, my previous book, Homegoing, is also about the family. And I told her not to read it. We were still in touch at that time. And I said she wouldn't like it, don't read it. Um, and uh, according to a cousin of mine, she may have read it, but we haven't, we haven't discussed it. She might have actually liked it. I mean, there's things, so my mother did read the story Claiming Tobias. And in the story Claiming Tobias, the character Velma throws rocks at her dog and slaps her young child in the face repeatedly. My mother read that story and had no problem with any of that. She said, it's, it's true. And I said, you know, you really shouldn't treat a dog that way. And she says, well, how else was I supposed to discipline the dog? So she doesn't really see anything wrong with those behaviors. And if that's the case, then maybe she'll be okay with it. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, in the collection, we see some of the stories through the mom's eyes, through Velma's eyes. Mm -hmm. And we see her, you know, confront the question of why she didn't leave her husband. And I just found her to be a very interesting and complex character. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it felt to me that we didn't get to hear as much from Phil. What went into making that decision to bring us closer to Velma? We get to see in her head at some point but to keep us at a distance. That's so funny no. because I was asked the same question, but from the opposite. So um, the story Wings Made of Rocks is all from Phil's point of view. And in the story Wings Made of Rocks, it's when we're introduced to his affair with Abby Goldberg. And so we see them in the affair, um, in the er you know early stages of the affair, in his office in, in New York. And he, his daughter comes and his justification is like, aren't I allowed to want anything? All I've done is like support you and your mother and Maddie's mother and my mother. I've been taking care of women all my life. Don't I get to want anything? And that's the voice of my father in my, in my head of, um, of Phil and of Bill, <laughs> my father. So I've, I did feel like we got we got to be in Phil's head and and see how he felt about it. Um, he felt like he had been living his entire life in service to all these women around him, but they didn't give back to him emotionally. He felt like he was giving to them financially and emotionally and being a support to them. And they were just taking, taking, taking. Everybody just wants something from him and he needed somebody to give something to him. Um, and, and then 
so one of the one of uh, the interviews that I did before said that you know we didn't we didn't get to hear from Velma enough, and um, so it's just interesting. I guess everybody sort of hears something different in in the collection, and I didn't mean for it to be more. Um, uh, I didn't mean for the reader to have more access to Velma and less access to Phil. That wasn't a conscious decision. There were more Velma stories and they came out when I had to submit the book at 75,000 words. So there was another Velma story in Velma and Livia story that's in the same format as the Velma Gertie story, which is the way we fell out of touch. Gertie is her white housekeeper and it's kind of done in the structure of um, direct address, almost like a theater piece. There was another story where we learned a little bit more about Velma and we get to crack her open a little bit and, and learn her frailties and insecurities. And I think that that's part of the crux of how she moves in the world is she puts on this front of toughness and boldness and uh, fight you know she's a fighter but i think the core of that is uh an insecurity of not measuring up not being you know not being enough um and also her past so her past involves being abandoned by her birth parents and then being adopted and she's very pleased with her adoptive family and very um connected to them and loving towards them but i think there's a, a an irreparable wound that has taken place that she does not deal with in the course of these stories. And I don't think she ever deals with, I think it's too painful. And I think that causes some of her later narcissism is, is this covering of, of this wound that she doesn't want anybody to know about it. She doesn't want anybody to know she was abandoned. Um, so hopefully, you know, <laughs> I've, I've given voice to both of those characters. Throughout these stories, the Arringtons experience a lot of racism. Maddie is frequently called the N-word, for example. They're denied membership to a country club. When they first move to Monroe, someone throws a large rock through their window. But the word racism isn't really used in the novel. Instead, experiences or people are characterized as prejudiced. Mm -hmm. Phil is constantly downplaying these incidents. Uh, Maddie is hurt by them. And uh, Velma is just enraged. As a writer, why did you want to show, why did you feel so important to show the different reactions to, in many cases, it's the same thing, mm -hmm. but the way the characters react is so very different. Yeah, I was gaslit a lot as a kid about my experience. So my parents all my life, like until my dad died, oh, it wasn't that bad and you were lucky and you should be grateful. And my mother, my mother denies that my father had to walk around that neighborhood with guns. My sister corroborated that. And that's why I felt I could write that story. So my father told me the story. I talked to my mother about it. And my mother said, oh, that's nonsense. That didn't happen. And then my sister said, oh, no, I was there. I was watching. I saw it happen. So I don't know. I think that um, in order for them to be able to handle the situation and in order for them to pursue the life that they were determined to pursue, they had to 
decide how they were going to process it. And the way they processed it was different from the way I processed it. And also, my parents were able to curate their friendships with white people in the community that they liked and who and that liked them. They were able to interact and socialize with professionals and with people with liberals. I went to public school all my all through my childhood and I was going to school with the children of cops and firemen and other blue collar workers a lot of whom were from families that had left the city to get away from people of color and were not pleased to encounter me and assumed that I was like those people in the city whatever in and that in and of itself is racist because there was probably nothing wrong with those people in the city, but they they equated me because I was a person of color with the negative that they believed about all people of color. We were all the same. And so I didn't write specifically about this, but there were kids who were not allowed to invite me to their house because I was a person of color and their parents did not go to college. They were high school educated. My father had a PhD and a postdoctoral degree. And so they didn't, they were not recognizing class. For them, you know, they were of a higher class than I was because I was a person of color. I was not good enough to socialize with them. And so that stuff, I didn't really understand it when it was happening, but, um, when I got older, you know, processing like, well, what did that even mean? <laughs> like, I just, I just, that's why I was writing about it because I was trying to understand it. I was trying to get a handle on it and also trying to understand, well, why were my parents so intent on telling me this isn't so bad? You, you're lucky. You should be grateful. Why? Like, I feel like they were invested in this life that they wanted to live. And they did not want me and my perspective impeding on this great decision that they had made to live basically like a white family in a white world. Um, so yeah, so I hope that answered your question. <laughs> you know, it, it did. And as I was reading, it, was, it made me think about situations where a white family adopts a child of color and they face criticism for keeping that child away from people from the same background. And I know in this case, it was, everybody was black here in this case, but it seemed like that's what was happening to Maddie to the point where it felt almost like abuse to me that why can't Maddie associate more with people who are like her? So Maddie doesn't always feel like an outcast. Yeah, they did. They did allow me to visit with my cousins, but those were very limited um, periods of time. The bulk of my life, I was always the one who was different. And I, I didn't have, I didn't know anything else. But when I was with my cousins, I, I sort of felt like I was part of a group, but I was different, you know, because of the way I was raised, I didn't really fit in. Um, and it wasn't because I was lighter. It was just because I was different. I, 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 I didn't speak the same language. I didn't have the same slang. I didn't understand the culture as well. Um, but I was curious and I wanted to, I wanted to be part of those other communities. And in fact, now I live in a black community in Los Angeles. Um, so I always craved that connection. Um, 
but yeah, I, you know, that's interesting that you say abuse. I, I kind of do see it as, as abusive. I think it's, I do think if you have a, ch a child of color in an, in an all white environment, you need to find a way for that child to have community on a regular basis, to feel like they're not so different. They don't have to explain their existence. They don't have to be defensive about who they are or answer questions about their hair or their color or their butt or whatever is different from the, the dominant culture. Um, and, but, you know, my parents didn't do that for whatever reason, that was, that was their choice. They thought it would be okay. And I guess if it had been okay, I wouldn't have written this book. <laughs> so it wasn't okay. <laughs> Tony Ann, the, the title of this book, Light Skin Gone to Waste, is also the title of one of the stories. And it's something a minor character says about Maddie, which she radically changes her appearance, which is something we see her do several times throughout these stories in an attempt to fit in with the white children she's around. Mm -hmm. um, it, the stories also get into this more in the story that is told from Phil's perspective, where his mother says she doted more on his brother because he was darker and she thought Phil's skin color would give him an edge in life. Although he rejects this notion and doesn't acknowledge any kind of light skin privilege. But still, this is something we see play out from day one really in this story is that the, the family is more readily accepted because of their light skin. And anytime a darker person is introduced into their world, whether it's Maddie's cousin or it's the uh, Haitian women who were brought in to look after Maddie at some point. They're called ugly, they're mocked, and it's always kind of underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose to make that the title of the collection? Um, that's a good point. I, I do think that the family does enjoy some measure of light skin privilege, but I, I felt like the title, so that in that story, when the character who says that to Maddie, she's speaking specifically because Maddie has cut off all her hair. She wants to have an Afro because she wants it to be clear that she's no longer trying to look like the white girl. She, she wants people to know that she's black. She doesn't want there to be any confusion because she's so light. Sometimes people aren't sure. And, um, and she wants to assert you know, this is who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm good with who I am. So the character says that as an insult, as if to say, you're so light skinned with your long hair, you could almost pass, but now you've ruined that um, because you now have short hair. So that's, that's one way um, to define that title. But then the other thing that you mentioned, Phil being the lighter skinned sibling and the mother favoring the darker skin, that's another instance where you could sort of twist the title and say, oh, light skin gone to waste. So in that case, the light skin didn't really work for them. And then overall, so this, this light skin couple feels that they are going to ascend and, and have a better life because they move into this community. But, but the, the family slowly falls apart because of, because of this aspiration, because they want all this great stuff, then the love diminishes. It just kind of falls out. And so was it worth it? I mean, that, that's, that's a question that I think people can answer in a different way. I think my parents would think, yes, my, my mother still lives in that area. She, she liked living in that area. My father 
kept an office in that area until he was diagnosed with dementia in 2013. He loved it. I left as soon as I could. <laughs> I, I skipped a grade of high school to get out. I didn't, I didn't think it was a great thing for me because it didn't affirm me as a human being. Um, and I wanted to be able to be broader and bigger in the world as myself. So I think that there's there's multiple ways. There's also another thread with uh, Velma being biracial and how her being light skinned really didn't didn't help her in her birth situation. There's so you can pull out like a bunch of different threads where that where colorism is involved and it it isn't all it's cracked up to be. Um, but I'm not denying that there is there is a measure of light skin privilege, you know, in for this family and for other people. There are times when it's an advantage because white people tend to be less threatened by a lighter skinned person, but I'm not sure that that's even if they're accepted. What is that saying, really? Like you're accepted, like for example, in the story with Flora, the little girl who's the daughter of Phil's mistress, and Maddie. And Flora says, "Oh, you look so pretty. Your hair looks so good like that. It's almost as if you're white." Is that a compliment? You know, like that's really a veiled insult. I look pretty, or Maddie looks pretty because she looks almost white. So what is that saying about her authentic self? So I guess I, I see it as a complicated, I see the advantages of it and I also see the disadvantages of it. Well, Tony and I know most writers always say, no, I don't, no, I don't. But I was gonna ask you anyway, do you have a story that's closest to your heart in this collection that you like a little bit more than the others? Um, let me think. You know, I like different stories for different reasons. So I really enjoy the story from Susie's point of view, um, Got to Be Real, because I love Susie's voice and I love reading in her voice. I, I think she has a lot of rhythm and fun to her voice. So I, I love that story for that reason. Um, the story make um make a space in the lives that we planned or make a space um was really hard for me to write because there was a i'm writing about an incident um, that actually took place where my father's affair was finally like pushed in my face and i had to confront it and so um that story that I can't say that I that it that it was it's a favorite, but I I feel like I worked really hard to 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 capture what I was feeling in that story. And then the story Wings Made of Rocks, um, the scene with Phil and his mother in the hospital room, which is a fiction. That scene in real life didn't take place, but I had to write it. That was a scene that Roxanne Gay forced me to go deeper in. I had tied it up in a nice little bow and it just ended much easier and quicker. And Roxanne Gay said, this is not done. Like you haven't done this justice. And so I had, that was the story that I spent the most time and effort on trying to flesh out that scene in a way that felt satisfying to me. And it was really hard. And if I'd had more time, I might have spent more time on it. <laughs> I'm not sure that I that it's finished, but um, but so those are the three stories that 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 stick out for me for different reasons. And I also enjoy 
uh, Velma's voice in the way we fell out of touch. I think Velma has a fun manner of speech way in a way of articulating her point of view. And so there's different things I like for different reasons. I, I always write um, with it, the, the sound of the story in my head because I, I, I come from an acting background. So I'm always writing, thinking, okay, well, when I read this, does will this sound good? Will this flow? And so a lot of it is, you know, my ear, you know, what, what sounds right to me. Um, so yeah, that wasn't a great answer to your question because you asked for one story and I don't have one, but different things for different reasons. Well, that's okay. Like I said, I wasn't <laughs> expecting you to give me one. I know that doesn't usually happen, but you know, for me as a writer, um, I'm sorry, for me as a reader, uh, the stories I enjoyed most were claiming Tobias and the way we fell out of touch. Okay. which sort of surprised me that I liked the way you fell out of touch so much because it is focusing on Velma and their white housekeeper. And you just think, oh, how interesting is, you know, we don't see her very much in the other stories. That like, but she, her story was also very compelling. And I love the way you told that. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you liked that. Yeah, I turned that into a play. So I'm a I've actually performed that a few times and I play both characters. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. What was the play called? It's the same title and I did it, I've done it twice now at a theater in Carmel, California called the Cherry Center for the Arts. And we're trying to raise the money to do a full production. They, these were staged readings, but with an invited audience. Um, so yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy both those characters and I found a voice for Gertie that really works for me. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. Okay, well, it was, it was uh, really, really touching. Her, to see, to hear her story or to to read her story and see it juxtaposed, juxtaposed with Velma's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, she deals with bigotry in her world also. That's the character who falls in love with. She's Catholic and her mother is a devout Catholic, and she falls in love with a Jewish man, and her mother um, impedes that relationship, and she suffers um, immensely as a result of that choice. So. I did feel like uh, what was interesting to me about it is Gertie seems to have a narcissistic mother and Velma has all this empathy for Gertie, not really realizing that she has similarities to Gertie's mother. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> Tony, and now I just want to switch gears and just for our last few minutes here, ask you a couple of questions about what you like to read. Okay. Uh, do you have anything that you find yourself turning to again and again? I like to call them go-to books, books that you've read many, many times and you just are drawn to them. Yeah, I'm, I've been drawn to, during, especially during the pandemic, like from 2020 through um, the end of 2021, I was listening on audiobook to all of James Baldwin's novels. I listened to each one of them twice and I had read Another Country and Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone and Giovanni's Room um, as a in my 20s and, and maybe again in my 30s, but I listened to all of them over and over and I just really learned so much from James Baldwin's um, phrasing and his vocabulary and his perspective and I'll never be able to do what he does. I'll never be able to do it because he he like weaves everything in so seamlessly um, perspective and the actual story and the, the social um, gravitas of what's going on in the, at the time and lesson. I mean, he's just a genius. Um, 
and I could only aspire to do some approximation <laughs> of that, but I do find his work really inspiring. And then a, a few years ago, um, a, a writer named Kathleen Collins was published. Um, her daughter is Nina Lorez Collins, who I'm gonna be in conversation with in New York in November, but her, her whole literary, um, all of her literary works were, were published in, in the last few years. And I read both of her collections. Um, one was called Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. And uh, the name of the second one escapes me, but I listened to both of those and read, I, I read them and listened to them both. And I, her work is very similar to mine, but I wasn't I wasn't influenced by it because my I had already written mine, but she's writing sort of in the same time period, like mid-century. She's writing about Black artists who are also educated and Black educators, like people in the same milieu that I uh, that I sort of live in. And so I, I really liked her work a lot. And she was around in New York at the same time. So she was teaching at City College when I was attending City College, like taking um, non-matriculated graduate classes. And the star of her play, Sorette Scott, was a director that I worked with on a play by Marie Thomas. Um, and so we were all in that same pool. I was in a, a group called Black Women in Theater and Kathleen Collins was creating at that time. And I just feel such a kinship to her work. She was uh, probably like a decade or 15 years older than I am, but we were working at the same time and probably like being inspired by similar things. And so I really love, love, love her work. On the flip side of that, is there a book maybe that everyone else loves, you know, critically acclaimed, but you just couldn't get into it? I don't, I don't really have that. And I'm, and I'm, even if I did, I would be reluctant. Like, I don't feel like I'm the, I don't, it's not my nature to bash any other <clears throat> artist because um, I feel like everybody is trying to do their best. But I will say that the book, The Help, was very upsetting to me. And, um, and I was very put off by it. And, um, and I'm not saying that it, that there weren't, things of value to it but I felt like the black women were not depicted in their full humanity and when I started working on my book I wanted to write about my mother's white housekeeper but I wanted to give her her full humanity um, but I also I was sick of just this mammy image over and over and that being the, the image that's, you know, so accepted in the dominant culture. We just the dominant culture just loves to see a black maid. F that shit. I'm sick of it. Um, and so, you know what? My mother had a white maid. She has a white maid to this day, a different white maid like. This, this isn't the only situation. Black women aren't always the maid. Sometimes black women are middle-class and they can afford their own maid. And, and I'm tired of that not being shown. Although in the TV show Maid, there is a black upper middle-class woman who does have a white maid. So kudos to that writer. But I hadn't, my, I was working on my book before that came out and I had never seen that before. So when I was doing it, I was like, I'm gonna do this because this is my truth. So I, want, I don't wanna bash that writer. I just wanna say that 
that didn't work for me because I felt like the black characters were only there to service the white character and they weren't given a the full depth of life experience and and emotions and i was telling one friend like you never saw like what they did for pleasure or fun like it was all it's just always the you know the negative and black maids in the 50s had lives and had you know sometimes they even bought nice clothes and went to fun things and enjoyed time with their friends they they lived their lives despite what the white perspective was so that's all i'll say <laughs> okay well what are you reading right now tony um right now i am reading uh two books I'm I'm reading um, a book that won the Story Prize I think last year, um, Filthy Animals by Brendan Taylor, and I'm also listening on audiobook to Rob Robert's read his memoir Liar Liar. Do you remember Rob from our program? I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so I'm, I'm reading one and listening to one. And what about your own work? Are you already working on something new? Oh, right now, I I am not a, in vi during this week. I am not because I'm prepping to do my audiobook. So I've I'm doing you know working on PR stuff and I'm teaching at Antioch. So I have student work coming in and I'm critiquing. So I don't really have time to write right now. But remember, I said I removed half of the of the book. So I would like to go back to that the portions of the book that I removed, which include a bunch of stories and a novella. And I would like to see if I can try to put together another collection, it would almost be like a sequel to light skin gone to waste. So the same family, uh, different perspectives. So some of Livia's perspective is brought in the grandmother's perspective and the next door neighbor's perspective. I have a third person plural story from the Magnas who are the next door neighbors um, from their point of view. So I'm gonna try to see if I can put that together. And then I have another book, a novel that I've done a draft of that was based on one of my early plays, Gramercy Park is Closed to the Public. I went back in and filled that out and, and went deeper into the characters and I've completed a novel and um, next year I'll try to figure out what what the next steps for that may be, if I can try to get that published. Um, I think it's odd, maybe I haven't really known other authors. So I've, I've done every iteration of that story that I possibly can. It was a play, the play was produced. Um, I wrote it as a screenplay. I got into the Sundance Screenwriters Lab with that. And, um, but the screenplay has not been produced. And now I, I think I'm just, not, I just have not been ready to just let that story die. Um, and there's, you know, I've just been relentless with like, okay, I believe in this story. I really want to tell this story. I really want it out in the world. And so that's something that I, when I have time, I want to um, try to put some en energy and effort into getting that out there. Well, Tony Ann, you sound super busy. I want to thank you again for coming on, read more to talk about your work. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see you again. Too. I know it's been so many years. So I, I really you look exactly the same. You have not changed. You haven't well, aged a day. Well, thank you very much. I don't feel that way, but uh, <laughs> I'll say you definitely look exactly the same. I, I have a filter on my. <laughs> I have the touch up my appearance filter on this, so I don't really look this young. But thanks. <laughs>
please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com to find out how you could win a free signed copy of Light Skin Gone to Waste. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.